0: Hi, uh, this is Eli, Uh, thanks for listening today, thanks for joining me on this journey here. Um, Just leaving Richmond, north of Oakland, on the East Bay, uh, working for a nice gentleman up there, helping to make some lampshades and uh, cups, heading down to Palo Alto the evening shift. I'm going to make some, uh, I think we're making some pumpkins. I think we're getting ready for the, it's, it's January. It's time to get ready for, for Christmas. Uh, and had some supper here with a carrot, some salami, a jar of applesauce that I made last year. Oh, shit, the applesauce is... I'm going to have to tell you about making applesauce. But what I want to talk about this episode was uh, wood. Preparing wood for cutting, different ways to cut wood, carve wood, uh, ways to identify wood, different ways you can treat your wood. Uh, Because I think some of this basic stuff is pretty important. Uh, And anyways... I don't know if it's important, it's just fun to talk about. Um, so I'm Eli Hansen. I'm uh, I'm an artist, a uh, steward of the craft. Uh, I make things for people and for myself. make large installations, wear little things, make them out of glass and metal of wood, polyurethane and plaster, whatever I can find, cardboard. Um whatever my weird little studio spaces allow me to do at that time. Sometimes I'm at my kitchen table. Sometimes I have a rabbit hut, just a studio. Sometimes I have a big studio space. Sometimes I live in a tiny apartment. I don't have any space. Um, and that's the, that's the feast and famine of, a, um, of an artist, of a steward of the craft. I've worked in a lot of different studios, doing a lot of different things. Um, And one of the most important things I learned when I was young uh, working for a metal worker was work for at least 30 different masters before you start to think about your own work. And I think I've made it past that number, but gosh, I still love it. And it's still one of my favorite things is um, working for a master. But in the, in the traditional sense of a master of a shop of a product line, somebody that has mastered all of the techniques of a certain, essentially of a certain company. Uh, it's not necessarily, uh, something bigger or larger or some sort of like great knowledge. It's just that, you know, all the things this company makes and you can make them all and you're a master of that, uh, that product line of that company's uh, product um you know sometimes masters be making things in real weird ways and um that's great I think that's important to learn I think it's important to learn how people make things differently um, how to mimic things it's, a, it's such been such a great journey in glasses there's all sorts of people that make all sorts of things all sorts of ways and um you know, they make their living doing that. And maybe it seems like a backwards kind of way, but it gets the product done. And they have, that's the, that's the mastery there. And understanding that um, is so important, I think, to being able to make many different things, uh, whether glass, wood, metal, cardboard, beeswax. Uh, So... Uh, let's talk about wood. Um, there is hardwoods and there's softwoods. Um, there's, and oftentimes those are kind of in the deciduous and evergreen where uh, hardwoods are often deciduous and evergreens are often more on the softer side. But that isn't always um, the case. There are ways that you can treat wood to prepare it. There's you can have just green wood, wood that is just freshly cut and hasn't really been dried, and you can dry it in a kiln. You can get kiln dried wood, or you can air dry it. Kiln dried is usually about a two week process at, I think around 160 degrees, maybe 120. That's probably the, probably the space that you can dry it. Um, somewhere in one of those ranges, and then just air dried. Um can be, you know, two to three years depending on the thickness of the wood and the airflow and the moisture content of the air and the temperature um, and how that how warm you got it, how much air you got moving through. Um oftentimes in furniture uh it's preferable to have air dried wood. Um, that it is the most reliable in that it will be stable. It's not going to move, uh, especially if you're dealing with burls or figuring um, in, in maple, particularly in the, uh, big leaf maples, you get this, what's called figuring. um, where it uh, is is figuring out some things, <laughs> uh, and it gets it gets um, it, it has this kind of wavy look to it. That uh, almost when you get a beautiful piece of figured maple, you get this like it looks like almost three dimensional. Um, you kind of move from side to side. It's well polished. It looks like it just it's like it moves uh, in a pretty magic way. Uh, that I, I believe that the Gibson guitar there's a certain Gibson guitar that is known for using that maple um, and they're really really beautiful pieces of wood and it's similar to a burl but a burl is often just a um, it's a weird growth and it isn't as exact in its figuring. the figurine is more from a large tree that's compressing those exterior grains in a way that is rippling it as it pushes down, uh, probably has to do with the water flow through it. Uh, get it in those wet places like in Washington state. Um, and so those things, when you have weird grains happening, uh, an air dry is going to be the most preferable because that long dry is going to assure that it's the most relaxed. Uh, Where when you kiln dry it, um, you can get the whole thing down to the right moisture content. But it might be under a little stress and it might want to move a little bit over time. Um, So, kiln drying or air drying. Like when you are turning something on a lathe, like if you want to make a bowl on the lathe, um, nice little salad bowl you're going to want to carve it out. You rough it out to be shape, you know, and leave it an inch or two thick, uh, Well, a thicker, leave it, leave at least a half inch or an inch of thickness on inside and outside. Um, thicker than your finished object. And then you let that dry for another year to three years. And then, um, then you finish it and that air drying process it's kind of the same thing we're talking about is with furniture is that and, and in a bowl shape when you carve out the center um you're removing a big chunk of wood and you're removing a something that's holding moisture but also something that's holding um pressure and so when you then remove that center part out um and the exterior, you change the way that it's drawing, you change the pressure points, and you want to let that wood then relax into its new form be- before you carve it. Because if you went right to the finished shape, especially if it's on the thinner side, it might, it's a good chance it's going to break and crack. Um, and so you might want to let it dry a little bit, and then carve it, and then dry some more. You, some people like to just carve it clean, um, and, and then let that relax and then carve that, um, that you might have a little less success rate, but you're not waiting as long and you might also have some more excitement. Um, there's lots of variations, kind of what you're, what you're going for in the finished object and whether you're also willing to, um, use adhesives, polyurethane and things like that to kind of, uh, um, fix things and repair things um so you've got some different ways you're going to treat the wood you've got some different kinds of wood let's go back to those different kinds of wood you've got well first let's talk about poplar because i feel like poplar is really underrated and really mistreated in the wood world um it is a it is a lighter wood it's kind of right in that area between a hardwood and a softwood um it generally grows pretty fast it gets a little it can be a little pithy a little soft and a little it can get rotten fast it takes it doesn't like where maple you can spar it and get a beautiful color from a, some mold and then that can be another beautiful thing where poplar it's just gonna mold and it's just gonna go pithy it's just, you're, you're, it's all it's all gone you're all done with that um you have to be careful with it. You got. You can't really let it just be outside doing some things, um, but it can carve like a hardwood, and it can exist in that kind of hardwood range. It's. Uh, it does have a little tighter grain, even though it's a quick-growing wood. And then, as far as like tight grain and loose grain, you know, it used to be back when we had these enormous trees that. You know the difference of grains was significant but now you know what uh, when old pine or fir is more like a hardwood than the woods of today like if you get a fir or a pine two by four like it's very soft and and big fluffy grains and um it's very different than um the wood That you could get, uh, you know, 50 to 100 years ago. Um, And what those, what a a tight grain fur is like is a very different thing. Um, You know, if you've ever uh, seen Donald Judd's plywood um, from his boxes that he makes, those cubes, those terrible cubes. Uh, He makes these square cube things and he made them out of plywood and the plywood is just mind blowing and beautiful, it's got this crazy marbling to it, it's so beautiful and and the way that it's also aged in the UV exposure and some has darkened and lightened the way that the different the layers of grain have um, darkened over time, it's also really, really incredible would love to see a comparison of that you know plywood I mean what a great thing, what a just a great object um you know i I think that it, it's important at this moment to really recognize how beautiful and amazing wood is, and I think we're at this kind of special point in our in the the human um the anthropocene here of wood and, w- and its availability and its use as an object and I think uh, it, we're getting to this place where we're elevating wood as an object and wood is becoming more scarce and therefore more exciting, more interesting and I think we'll just continue to see that and we'll, there'll be less and less wood being used and, and, and it'll become more of a rare object uh, you know, just in my short life a lot of the woods that were uh, more available and more junky woods are becoming, uh, have become very coveted objects, almost, you know, to the place where you're selling it by the pound, and it's, you know, it is it is approaching metals in its valuable uh, in its value. Like this figured maple for the for the Gibson guitars, I mean that stuff is like that's there's a black market for that um there are people that uh go out in the woods in the northwest of the chains on bill all night and they you know they find that tree and they harvest just that chunk of figured wood from it um and are able to move that on a black market um and, you know like there's these tight grain fir and pine that used to be, you know, if they didn't, if they had some knots in it, they would throw away wood. And a lot of those logs were in the Northwest used in the logging industry as, as piers or as boom logs. A boom log is a log that is used to carry a boom. A boom being a large bundle of logs and so if you have multiple bundles inside of a boom you're going to want to wrap that boom in a ring of logs in a hundred foot long log with a hole at the end you want to get 20 or 30 of those and you're going to wrap those around you're going to chain those together and those will carry your bundles and you'll just use those boom logs over and over again to carry your bundles Um, in a boom and those boom logs entered the Puget Sound in, you know, 10s and 20s uh, and, you know, up to into the 50s and 60s and would be used for that whole time, uh, just over and over again. They just keep floating and they start to lose their, you know, their exterior grains. The um, There's a kind of clam it looks like it's like a worm looking thing but it's actually a clam and it burrows a a hole through the wood and they'll get filled up with these clams um creating these kind of amazing wormwood holes through it and uh but still float and would get used for booms and have just you know within the last 20 years the harvesting of those boom logs pulling these logs out of the swamp which are really tight grain pretty true grain fir, pine even cedar occasionally and um, but they just have more knots than was acceptable at the time when just pure clear grain wood was being used and so these these logs are now then kind of re-entering the market at a very high value um so how we look at these pieces of wood is changing, and I think will continue to shift in some really uh wonderful ways uh, and so it's something i think it's it's fun to kind of think about and a draft as, as a dress as a craftsperson uh, you know having known wood and come in from a place like the northwest where wood shops and knowledge of wood is just kind of like that's very background information it's in some ways i think it's kind of not even considered as much of a craft and it's less coveted where my glass skill is is something that's very marketable you know it's the the wood skill is just so uh kind of ubiquitous that it's uh less uh less unique and uh maybe harder to just kind of find work as a, as a, as a high-end woodwork, you kind of need to know very a lot about wood to get into those places. So, um, wood, I I think going back to the, the old growth and these big straight grain trees is where, um, we came up with this idea of quarter sawn wood or half sawn when you would uh, you can imagine you have a tree a round tree and you cut it you split it into quarters and so that is quarter sawn and then from there you take each one of those and you can cut those quarters into boards and using the grain alignment in such a way that you can get the grain running in a particular way through the board so that you have the grain running the short way or the long way through the board, and that that might be something you could uh, ask for in a wood or kind of choose for in a in a wood choosing situation. Now, with the size of the trees, the quarter sawn is a, is a, is not as. It doesn't make that much difference because the grains are bigger and not as tight. It's like, and the trees are way smaller. You're not really getting, you know, what you used to be able to get, you know, a couple hundred boards out of one quarter of an enormous old growth tree. Now you're getting, you know, four or five or ten boards, and they kind of all just got the grain going through about a curve in any which way. Um, and so, there's parts of this that are these old world approaches to wood and thoughts of wood. And some of this is also has to do with hardwood and softwood and the way that we treat wood. And I think thinking about this stuff and understanding where, um, those thoughts about that medium come from, that they're all shifting and it's not the same. And I think, you know, we're addressing it in a different way and using it in a different way and, um, really, you know, valuing it in a different way, where maybe if it's not a perfectly quarter sawn, true grain, not free piece of wood, it still has a very, it has a lot of value and has a lot of interest in function and a lot of beauty. And in some ways, I think finding that beauty of of the of the weird stuff, of the things that are a little bit off, is uh, an even more fun space to be in, because you know, a true tight-grain piece of pine, I mean, man, it is beautiful, and it smells so good, and feels so good, but it just kind of disappears. It's just straight little lines, and it's just a perfect board, and it doesn't do anything weird. Uh, and there's no real kind of you know, magic figuring to it. Uh, and so... Um, thinking about it differently I think is for me as a craftsperson a really uh, exciting thing so got some hardwoods we got some softwoods we got some quarter sawn wood we got some half sawn wood we got just straight logs Um, if you're getting right in the center of the wood the heartwood there's a certain amount of grains in the center that are the heartwood. Um, and that wood um, is often a little less desirable. It can get softer. And I think it has to do with kind of where the where the tree is growing from where it transports its water. That um, that heartwood then is a little more apt to uh rot Uh, and that's also in something like you know in larger pieces and you can see in certain cedars will often have like kind of a different color of the heartwood Uh, and you can maybe it's valuable in like you know plum you can get these beautiful colors but it's also it's one of those things that for a while like that heartwood was so it was not desirable so it wasn't even used and it was removed and discarded. And and now it's just, I think, treated in a different way. Um, and so that's uh, kind of something to think about as you're addressing wood and, and being able to see where that shift in color is. And You can really, you know, it'll sometimes just be a little darker into the grains. You can also see some change in color in the grains from different weather conditions. Uh, and you might be able to, if, you, if you're really paying attention, be able to read years and the weather shift in a piece of wood and how those grains grow and shrink. You can also see the small grains in the winter and the large grains in the summer um, and how those can look different. Um, So now you want to cut this wood. Um, And Generally, it's you're going to be ripping or cross-cutting. Ripping, you're going to be going in line with the grain, ripping the grain apart. Um, And cross-cut, you're going to be generally cutting across that grain, like you're going to put the 2x4 in the chop saw, and you're going to chop it, you're going to cross-cut that. And you're going to have certain types of uh, saws And teeth on those saws and the way that those teeth and saws work together um, to more cleanly cut those and to move the wood fibers out of the way as you are uh, cutting them. Uh, Generally, ripping is going to go a little easier and you're going to use a saw blade with less teeth and a little more space. You're going to be chewing through it. And where if you're cross-cutting, you're going to be cutting through the grain in the hard way, and uh, you're going to want to have more teeth on your saw blade. Uh, And you're generally going to want a sharper and better blade ripping, you can kind of cheat and get away with it. Funkier blades, it, and it's not as a precise, a cross-cutting saw, and you know, you'll know, you find some people want to only use their cross-cut blade. Cross-cutting, only use their ripping blade and have a certain kind of parameters. They want those to be used with it. Um, and if you find those people, you can know right then. They've got other issues, too. Um... Oh, man, we're about to get on a Dumbart Bridge here. This is such a beautiful area, crossing um, the bay here, the lower bay over into, uh, I guess, onto the west side, over onto getting closer to Palo Alto here. Uh, The sun, I am driving into the sun now on 84. The rain's have been dumpy. It's been this crazy rain, so there's no cars. The eucalyptus are all looking really bushy and full right now. Uh, they often are really droopy here. Uh, but then these big rains, you can kind of see the... Even the palm trees, uh, you know, the eucalyptus, like the color is just even brighter, and the branches are kind of perking up in a way. Uh, and the palm trees and everything its just like, is thick with, with water. Uh, it's really beautiful right now. So it's wonderful talking about wood. Thinking about wood one I'm driving through. Looking at trees here. Um, okay, so you're going to be using things like a table saw, a band saw, a chop saw, or a miter saw, which is kind of like a chop saw, but um, it's got a couple of different functions that uh, are more exciting hand saws, you can have a push saw or a pull saw, uh, and you're going to have a little different shaped teeth where they're cutting into the center of that hand saw, or they're cutting outside of that hand saw, um, and whether the teeth are kind of, um, Uh, brazed on there or whether the teeth are just the sharpened blade, whether it is a high-carbon tool steel or a stainless steel. These things all, they kind of matter, but remember that these are all made by people and they're just inventions and they're just tools uh, and there's no right way or wrong way. Um, And if you think that you're you know your way works great and you like the name of your saw. well that's great and that is important um i think that there's a lot of kind of uh you know gatekeeping and kind of restriction of knowledge and um you know there's only one right way sort of thing that can happen around some of these crafts that is just really uh It's sad, because what we're really talking about is wood, which is really a natural thing. It doesn't... Wood doesn't have anything to do with saw. Wood doesn't have anything to do with metal. Um, Wood is just its own thing, and uh, we've got a lot of ways we want to approach it, and uh, all sorts of history and culture around these approaches, and there's just kind of one certain fairly European-centric way we're looking at things right now, but... uh, remember that that is just one way so um pushing and pulling with the saws generally an american hardware hand saw is going to be a push saw um which for some crazy reason is just the saw that we always use which is another thing to look at and realize that like this saw is actually not that great of a saw, and it's the saw that is really the only saw where you go to the hardware store and you're like, I want a handsaw," This is the saw you're getting. Um, it seems to be based on the whip saw. The whip saw is the big, long six-foot blade that you might use um, to cut down a big tree in the 1890s. Um, where you see two people holding both sides, whether they're holding it horizontal on the tree or whether they're um, you're going across uh, a a log, and you have one person on either side, which used to be kind of the standard, uh, because you really need to be pushing and pulling on this thing, and you need to keep it moving because a lot of this wood was so pitchy, um, and so you'd be using kerosene to as a solvent. Uh, If you've ever seen in these old whipsaw photos, you'll sometimes see a bottle hanging from the tree. It's a bottle. It's almost like it looks like a a hummingbird feeder, like a bottle with a little nozzle sticking off, uh, hanging upside down. And you kind of wrap the cord around it in a certain way. And then you've got a hook that you hook it into the bark and then you hang it. And then you're going to want to drip kerosene on your saw blade. Because if you don't keep that saw blade moving and with solvent on it that pitch can freeze up your saw blade you're going to lose your saw blade in that tree or you're going to have to come in there from another way and i'm sure that would be a great way to like get in trouble or lose your job with the bossman, uh, if you did weren't really careful with your whipsaw. um so those whipsaws you know would have been oftentimes are braised on teeth uh, sometimes they're just it's a it's a high carbon tools steel. um which would be just a steel alloy that is uh, carbonized, and we'll get further into this. Uh, but a, uh, a ha- using carbon to create a harder steel, and um, so you might have little tooths on there that you could um, attach using uh, a brass glue when it's hot, um, called brazing, uh, or sometimes referred to as soldering. Um, and so this push and pull motion, um, would have been how we kind of got to the hand saw of today, the large saws that you would push across the wood. And so American style is very, we're all really used to this push style of saw, but it turns out pushing a piece of thin steel like that isn't actually necessarily mechanically the best way to use that force. And if you use a pull saw, or often referred to as a Japanese pull saw, or a Japanese saw, um, which are the, the cutting action is when you pull on the blade um, and the teeth are set up in such a way that the handle is on the opposite side of the two st- pulling into it so that when you pull on the saw it cuts and when you push it doesn't cut and so you kind of um, relax the pressure when you push it through and you use the pressure to pull it through so you can have a thinner blade because you don't need as much steel because you're really it's like the idea of pulling a string as opposed to pushing a string you can't push a string very well, so you have to have a thicker rope to be able to push it, but you can pull a string. And so these pole saws work really wonderful, and most woodworkers now uh, in America use these saws pretty regularly in there, especially in joinery or furniture work, a pretty important part of a uh, toolbox. And uh, they become pretty standard as people have realized that those push saws are just you just have to have a a lot more steel and they're a little harder there may be some advantage in those thicker ones that you have a you have more steel so you can have um, maybe it hold the blade longer and maybe it has the ability to be sharpened easier Uh, the pull saws are very difficult to sharpen they generally you just um, you use them and they don't you don't sharpen them um, once they've worn out once the teeth break or they've worn out they're kind of discarded. It's a thin piece of steel uh, so but there i mean i a sharpening a handsaw is really a pain in the butt, and trying to get it just precise is also um, pretty crazy too so handsaws those are some handsaws there's all sorts of little kind of um cutty handsaws that are great too and anything that works um, is great okay so then you got your table saw and that's where generally you're going to get those ripping blades or cross cutting blades and you might set up a table saw for just doing that either one of those you're going to do a lot of rips or you're going to do a lot of cross cuts and then you might be using a, a cross cut sled or some sort of jig to Push a piece of wood through so you could do a cross cut, um, especially if you want a long cross cut. If you have a lot of wood that's laminated together and you need to do big cross cut, and it's something more than your chop saw or miter saw can do. Um, so, those saws I mean, honestly, let's be real a table saw is just ridiculous. I do not love a table saw, it's big, it's unruly, it takes up a lot of room. And they're really loud, obnoxious, and incredibly dangerous um and a big bandsaw is just a such a what more wonderful tool. It's like to me, it's the difference between a push saw and a pull saw that a good bandsaw with the large throat um the the area the throat being the area from the blade over to the body of the saw. So that's your restriction. The nice thing about table saw is that you kind of have this. You don't have a throat. You just have a blade sticking up on a table. Um, And so you have a little bit more... um, You have less restriction size-wise. So... (laughs) But if you have a bandsaw with an 18 inch throat and you've got a one inch, an inch and a quarter blade, so it's not, a, it's going to be a pretty stable blade and you've got a good fence and you're using your saw with some care, I, you know, they just, they, it's a smaller saw curve. They're so much cleaner and tighter to use and, I mean, maybe it's that a bandsaw blade is a trickier thing to replace and to keep in stock. But and you can get a table saw blade, and you know, if you're just if you're just doing kind of you know ripping construction kind of ripping out boards, I mean sure, a table saw is totally the great tool. But if you're doing fine woodworking, to me, I just feel like a a good bandsaw really is. It's a smaller footprint, and it's a way more functional tool. And you can get just about as clean of a cut as you can off of a good crosscut saw on a table saw. Duh, some people like to use think think they can get with the right blade get a clean enough cut off a table saw that they don't need to plane that side, but Man, that is like that's where you're like keeping your crosscut blade like super tight, and you're all only using your table saw to crosscut, and then you got to worry about it, and you got to keep it all like super perfect, and then you've got this like enormous tool that's in the center of your shop that you're only using for certain things because you're like all freaked out about it, and then that's just like that's a big waste of space. Whereas if you have a tool like a bandsaw and you're willing to plane things or sand them or maybe take another step of finishing, which you're probably going to take on one of those sides anyways, then it, it becomes a more functional tool that takes up less real estate. And I think, now here's a crazy thought. I think that you can set up a wood shop without a table saw. I think a good bandsaw and using a track saw Like, you know, Festool makes a really great track saw, but there's all sorts of great track saws. Or just slapping a straight edge on something and having a way to slap it on there in a tight way. Also is really, is is super functional. And it makes a really tight, straight cut. And the only time that you might not want to use that track saw is um, when you're cutting tiny, tiny little trim which is where your bandsaw is going to be a great tool for that and uh it's gonna just be it's gonna take a smaller sawker. if it's gonna produce less dust you're gonna lose less wood and remember wood is really valuable so having this big you know chunk of meat you're taking out from that table saw and somehow thinking you're getting you're saving time by not having to clean up that side because your table saw is so perfect, but then you're losing time because look at all that real estate and time and money and space. They're all the same thing, right? It's like E equals MC squared. It's the same thing, man. So bandsaws, a good bandsaw, Powermatic 18 inch throat. I mean, it's an expensive tool, but that's a great tool. And if you're actually doing woodworking and that's the kind of thing you do, you know, we should talk. Uh, I obviously have thought a lot about this. Probably too much. Um, so. But if we're getting real, like in my tool bag, what do I have? I got a pull saw. I got one pull saw, and I got. I really like the um. There's a Swiss Army knife that has a saw blade on it. That man, that thing is just. I also think that's really great. That and a drill, like even a hand drill, just where you got to crank it, like the old school cordless style. That and a little tiny little four-inch blade on a Swiss Army knife. There's a lot that can be done with that. Real talk. Um, I've done a lot with that. Um, So maybe you do want a table saw. And that's good. I'm proud that you want a table saw. I'm glad that you want a table saw and you believe in that. Because to me, believing in this stuff and wanting it in a certain way is also the important part. Um, I think following some sort of rule just because that's the way it is and that's the way you were told and that's the way people yelled at you when you were in a shop. I think those are the things we want to avoid. That's where we want to start steering ourselves away from. Um, Those kind of behaviors. I think it's important to like address those um, those moments and think about like why and question those things. And maybe we want to get right back to the original thought, you know, that like it's, you know, we want a chop saw, we want a table saw, um, but, you know, a pole saw and a band saw are going to do a lot for you and take up less real estate. So, um, have some thoughts on that. Let's talk about chop saws and miter saws because those are also one of those ones where it's like, this is a miter saw, not a chop saw. And a miter saw is generally going to be one that has, um, it goes in and out and then it goes at an angle and a compound angle so that you can rotate the blade side to side and like if the blade you can take it from vertical to a 45 and it goes in and out and it swings uh all the way over to a 45 um and those are all really great functions and when you get into production having a really tight miter saw where you can do these compound angles is really helpful but if you're just making one-offs oftentimes like that amount of compound angles like you're only just going to be cutting something 12 times to try to get that right angle when you could have just taken a pull saw um, and some pencil marks and also got very true with that um and again that's where you're going to want to have those really like to make it really worth it is you're going to want to have a really nice blade on there because if you're using a chop saw with a big ripping blade and wide teeth and it's not super sharp then your cuts aren't going to be maybe as clean and so you're maybe going to have to clean those afterwards if you for some reason wanted them really clean Um, and so that's where having that really nice blade on it does make a difference but i mean how many of those cuts are you really doing and how much have you really practiced with a pole saw because i think that's where like really practicing with the pole saw, and getting that ability to really control that saw i mean those things can really cruise through wood and a couple good pole saws and so when you're cutting with the pole saw using a block to slide against is a really great technique where if you kind of have a pencil mark and you want to cut on that pencil mark rather than just holding the saw and trying to aim for that is you set a piece of wood on that a little block and then you just put your finger against that block and you kind of slide that and start your groove there and use that block and you can clamp that block down and you can kind of use your hand on it or even use another piece of wood maybe even some wax on there. There's lots of techniques for hand working those things that I think are, uh, because of the use of machines in wood shops, like I think there's a lot of these little techniques that we forgot or aren't passed on as much um, and aren't as tight um, in shops. Um and I don't think it's things that are unachievable or, or, like, I think that's the kind of stuff that you can really get in your garage and in your living room. Um, you can make really, really nice stuff. And I think it's it's something that people think that you need all these really nice tools. But, in fact, um, maybe it's more of, like, patience and belief in yourself that you can uh, make these really nice things using a Swiss Army knife, a homemade chisel. So, um, chop saw and a miter saw. Um, they're just different kinds of vertical circular saws cutting down and turning. The blade is turning into you and going down. Um, and... Where the table saw, I guess the table saw is turning in the same direction, right? Because it's turning, it's coming over and into you. Um, Man, there's probably some cool old saws, some cool old circular saws that would go the other way. But uh, that sounds really exciting and dangerous. Um, So circular saws and reciprocating saws are another one. That's the innie outy ones, like a sawzall or a jigsaw. are the uh reciprocating blades and those are, a lot can be done uh with a jig saw. the jigsaw sawzalls are a little more brutal but you can also set those up to do a lot uh, for yourself okay touching the sawzall the reciprocated saw circular saw chop saws band saws there's lots of different kind of bandsaws, and a bandsaw like it's a big loop of a blade, and um, cutting down into the working surface generally. And those are great for cutting curves. You can kind of, with a different size blades, you can cut different radiuses. So you can essentially, with with a smaller blade, you can make a smaller circle. And then when you get up into the big blades, you can also um, cut very straight with them. They're great because they're a loop, you can have, you can make a very tall cut. And so they'll be used for re wood or taking a log and quarter-sawing that log. So you take that log and you cut it into quarters. And now you got your quarters and now you can take those quarters break those down into boards and you can then prep those for um a more for your wood whether you're you know if you're making some furniture or something um, you could get your air dried log and then you could resaw it and break it down into boards that are then usable to make your desktop or your furniture your your chair legs um uh, and those and that wood, um quarter sawn hardwood can we get into the shop so um probably gonna have to take a break here uh, I feel like i could really keep going on this one and this is the one where i wasn't so sure how to start and end it because i know that like each of these little tangents is potentially another hour or two of me conversating about um uh, my opinions about it and my hilarious deep knowledge of it and my love of it all uh and my you know my love of the high-end craft and the lo-fi craft and you know making really nice things with really crappy tools and making really crappy things with really nice tools um i think that those are all really fascinating to me because i think that it it ultimately i think it really um can feed into the knowledge of the tools and the fact that these are just human-created tools and and working in an organic space. And it's us trying to kind of control our environment in a a place that ultimately is not, is uncontrollable. You can kind of have a certain amount of, like, um, you know, influence, but it's ultimately, it's, you know, it's going to do its own thing. It's going to um, you know, grow into the tree that it's going to grow into. And it's eventually going to rot into the ground. And we're just taking a little time in between to like shape it into an object. Uh, and that's a really wonderful and fascinating thing. Um, so we'll think some more on this on saws. And I didn't even get into chisels and carving and hand carving um wood and and kind of the subtleties of cutting across grain and then sandpaper and sanding and polishing so maybe really um what we need to do is have another um another hour where we talk about um carving the wood with little carving tools chisels and how to hit things correctly with a chisel or how to hit a chisel correctly Um, And incorrectly, let's talk about that too. And then how to sand it and polish it and um, make it nice or make it really funky. But for now, I think it's time to go make some pumpkins and Christmas ornaments. And maybe there's been talk of making some sort of like Golden Gate Bridge design. So maybe we'll make some sort of glass Golden Gate Bridge thing. Maybe it's like a Marini or a cane or maybe it's a sculpture we're going to talk about Glass Scene, but I'm going to tell you all about a bunch of other stuff first because that's the stuff that comes first, I think. Um, thanks so much for listening. It's been really wonderful having you here with me in the car and talking about um, all the stuff that I love to talk about, and I'm glad that you listen. listened. So, um, I'll be back with more of this information, but for now, um, this is Eli Hansen, and I'm signing off of the Craftcast here. Okay, bye for now. This is the end of the message.